All right, so that's the fourth week of Lent. We've got the fourth message in the series, Cruciformed. We're looking at the cross-shaped life. Because Jesus, in Matthew 16, verse 24, she, he calls us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow him. Lent is about extended fasting, it's about extended prayer, it's about extra repentance, about looking upon our sins and how we can be conformed more into the likeness of Christ by taking up our cross and following him so that we may be partakers of the Easter resurrection life when Easter comes. That's, that's what we've been doing. So we've been looking at cruciformed, the cross-shaped life. It's a hard call for Christians to carry their cross. And when taken to the extreme or to the degree that Jesus actually teaches, I get more pushback from people in teaching, taking up your cross than I do about anything else. I don't know if it's human nature, if it's American nature, or a little bit of both. But we do not like giving up our rights to take up the cross as our identity. We don't like it. And so I had these six passages planned out for us and... um no, I think five, because yeah, the sixth Sunday of Lent is Palm Sunday, so we're doing Palm Sunday, but I had five passages laid out. I asked Gio, who taught last week, and Richard, who will be teaching next week, to choose their pick of the lot, and none of them picked tonight's passage to my dismay, and I know why they didn't, because you read this and you're like, this is a really hard message. Well, it's going to be challenging, so that's my warning to you. Um, all right, the cross-shaped life. So tonight, Paul's going to boldly ask us this question. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Of all the options you have before you, Paul just says here, let me give you the cruciformed option. Suffer wrong and be defrauded. Are you kidding me? That's not very helpful to my self-esteem. It's not very victorious of me. It's not very American of me. That is what he is going to say. But here's what we're also going to see. Only the ill-informed refuse to be cruciformed. Once you understand what's behind the cross of Christ and the power that's in it, you will have to be ill-informed about it to refuse it. Because the cruciformed in this world become the rulers of the next. That's what Paul's going to present to us. It's worth taking up our crosses in this life to be rulers in the next. All right, so let's read the text, and then we will look at their situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you... Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But that brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. So, here we go. Corinth. We're in the middle of this Corinthian letter. We're launching in right in the middle, so what's going on? The city of Corinth was a very unique city in the Roman Empire because, unlike other Roman cities where the caste system was pretty set, you're either wealthy in the upper escalon or you're not, Corinth was an upstart city in which a lot of slaves, freed slaves, actually made their home And in many ways, Corinth is the America of the ancient world. It was a place where people can go and actually, unlike the rest of the empire, carve out a name for themselves if they work hard enough. So one of the major societal trends in Corinth was that people would do whatever it takes to clamor above one another and establish their social status. Well, it appears through the writings of Paul's first letter to this Corinthian church that this sort of uh, ambitious, um, rivalistic culture within the Corinthian society had crept into the church. And that the church was beginning to adopt this attitude of, well, we can carve out positions for ourselves within the church, who's better than each other, and who's of higher status, and who's not. And so Paul in this letter is writing to them and saying, look, look. We cannot have this desire for social status seize the church. Um, Just as an example of what he's really tackling, you can see in the very first chapter, in verse 10, you get the core message of this book. In 1 verse 10 he says this, I appeal to you brothers, in light of what I just shared with you about their culture, I appeal to you brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. And then he goes on to address different issues. And some of them are pretty crazy. Um, Tonight's being maybe the second craziest in the letter. Christians are suing Christians. Now, this drives Paul crazy, what's happening here. But there's four reasons we need to see. First of all, This is driving Paul crazy because Christians are seeking worldlings, Corinthian judges, to try Christian cases. Now, that might seem odd to us because much of our justice system is based upon the so-called Judeo-Christian worldview, or at least was based and is somewhat loosely following that now. That might seem odd to us, but in Paul's thinking, this is very ironic Okay, what you need to see is in verse 1, he says, Do you dare go to law before the unrighteous? We have two words in English, righteous and just, or justice. Uh, But in Greek, those words are the same word. There's no two different words. So one way to read this is, do you go to law before the unjust? And he, at the end, in verse 11, said, you have been justified. Here's what's crazy. These believers who are justified, they're made just before God, are seeking justice before the unjust. How twisted does this get? 
You know the true justice of God. It's living in your midst. You are in his justice, and yet you're going outside of the justified church to the unjustified pagan to seek justice for the justified church. There's something odd about this, which is why I love the strong wording. And you dare go to the unjust? So there's some problems here, uh, like their inability to handle, second thing that's driving them crazy, their inability to handle the lawsuit within themselves is an utter rejection of their destiny, their calling. As you saw in verses 2 through 4, they're going to judge the world and angels. If you're going to judge the world, you better be able to judge your congregation. If you're going to judge angels, you better be able to judge mortals. It's very logical. So Paul's being driven crazy that they don't even understand what they're called to be. Why are you so infatuated with the Corinthian society? You've got your own to grow up in. Third reason this drives him crazy is he said in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all is already a defeat for you. Okay, so bad enough to go to pagan courts, but even worse is let's just not have lawsuits from the beginning. Let's not even go there. That's why he says, wouldn't it be better for you to suffer wrong? And then fourth thing that drives him crazy is that they're using the crooked Roman justice system in order to climb the social ladder by suing their own brothers in the church. If, if your path to gain glory, to gain wealth, to gain status is to sue people, let it not be one of your Christian brothers. And oh, by the way, Paul seems to hint, well, he says in verse 8, look, you guys are doing this. You're wronging and defrauding. So this is what's driving him most crazy, is that they're using the church, they're using their brothers and sisters to climb the social ladder in the secular culture. This is perverted, twisted, backward thinking. And he then implies that such thinking disqualifies you from the kingdom of God. That's why he says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you're going to use the unjust court system to display your own injustice toward your brother, you have no place in the kingdom of God. That's, that's how strongly he's saying this to them. Why would some of the people looking for status in the church go outside the church to settle their lawsuit? Because they know the justice in the church. They know it's not, they know that the church is fair and that they won't be able to win. But if they go to the Roman courts, they know how the system works and they'll win. There's this actual evil happening here in the church. And now, before we go too far, let's make very clear that Paul is speaking in this passage about lawsuits within the church. He's not talking about what happens in the world. So if you get sued or you have a problem where you need to sue some idiot, just make sure what you're not doing is suing the person in the chair next to you or across from you and <laughs> trying to gain advantage out of that. That's what he's addressing here. So please do not feel the panic of I am disqualified if I am sued or I need to sue. That's not at all in this text. 
Just so, okay, so we're going forward without you getting too lost. Now, okay, so why would, why would believers want to go to the pagan courts? Because they're unjust and they're crooked. So, if you had a certain social status, a certain gender, or a certain wealth income, you knew you would have the favor of the judge. Because their courts were blind to justice, and they were stacked in that way. So, if you had the right makeup or the right place, you would probably win your case a good chance. No matter who's at wrong. And secondarily, the judges were often tickled by the lawyer who was most skilled in rhetoric, in the ability to speak. So sometimes it was actually a game of which side had the better lawyer and the better speech. So people would actually flock and these courts would become events in which people watched and praised and judged the different rhetorical skills of the lawyers. This is a totally not fair system. And yet some are taking advantage of it to climb the ladder. And Paul's like, okay, this is driving me insane because fundamentally it boils down to this. In the unjustified world with an unjust system that does not know the justice of God, the church must be the alternate community, the alternate community that practices the justice of God. And if you're going to forego the justice of God, you will forego his kingdom because his kingdom is built on the justice of God. Okay, so Paul takes them to court. You want to go to court? Let's go to court. It's almost like he's just, Paul is like a bulldog. He just sometimes really rubs it in people. Remember when we were in Galatians a couple weeks ago and I told you he's attacking the people that want circumcision, Christians to be circumcised, and he basically at the end just says, you know what, I hope that they would circumcise themselves and that the knife would slip too far. And he said, emasculate themselves. Just don't use your imagination, but use your imagination. Um, That was one where we see Paul in their face. Here he's in their face again. He's like, you want to go to court? All right. Paul takes on the posture in this text as a hungry prosecutor. And the Corinthian church is in the dock. And they are getting cross-examined. They're getting grilled with a volley of questions. You may have noticed in our 11 verses, there were 10 questions and only five statements. And the statements weren't very nice. I say this to your shame. You are defrauding and wronging your brother. Don't you know? Don't be deceived. Like Those are the nice statements he makes. But there are ten questions. Do you dare? Question one, do you dare go to law before the unrighteous, the unjust, instead of the saints? Question two, do you know that the saints will judge the world? Number three, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Number four, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Number five, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? Number six, why do you lay such cases before those who have no standing in the church or in the kingdom of God? Number seven, I think number seven is sarcastic. Can it be that there is no one wise enough to settle a dispute before the brothers? Number eight, why not rather suffer wrong? Number nine, why not rather be defrauded? And number ten, do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They are being grilled, cross-examined. All right, let's go to court, guys. You don't want to mess with with Attorney Paul. So this cross-examination becomes for us our own cross-examination. How are we doing with the cross-shaped life? Are we cruciformed? Are we carrying our cross and following Jesus? Paul gives us opportunity to cross-examine, cross-examine ourselves. 
Are we cross-shaped or are we not? So, we can tighten his ten questions into basically three. They all kind of boil down to three. This is the first, and this is what we need to ask. What is my identity? What is my identity? Paul, in verse 1, called them saints twice. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unjust instead of the saints? The second one is in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? I love the contrast here. First, he doesn't just say, he doesn't start with saying the brothers. Why are the brothers going to court? He says the saints. It's a special word. Saints is the word, it's actually based upon, the in the Greek, it's the root for holy. Actually, it's not even the root. It's the same word. Holy and saint, is the, it's hagias in Greek. The holy ones, the saints. It means that they're set apart from the world and devoted to God. That's what a saint is. Do you not know that you are a saint? This is, what is my identity? Do we identify as saint? If we do, then we have absolutely no dealing with the society and what it deems as valuable and important. Because we've been called out of that, and we've been devoted to the kingdom of God, which as a kingdom, which as an empire, which as a government, has its own values, its own laws, its own ways of living. We've been set apart. And so we must, therefore, take on the identity of saint. Um, You'll also notice he calls them brothers four times, The first was in verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Verse 6, brother goes to law against brother. And verse 7, no, verse 8, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Four times he uses the word brother. And um, as some of your Bibles, the footnote will tell you that brother, and it also means brothers and sisters. The idea of pulling out this word brother, is that Paul is saying, you're a family. What is my identity? You're a saint, yes, but you're also a brother to someone else. You're a sister to another person. You're family, which means there is equality in a family. Yes, you have fathers that need to make decisions, and sons and daughters that need to be punished, and that need to be guided. Of course, there are roles and places in a family, but the idea is that no one, no matter what age or rank in the family, is lesser than another member in the family. Everyone in a family is willing to die for the other members in the family. Now, of course, there are some dysfunctional families, and you're like, I would never even give a piece of pie to that, brother. Maybe, maybe. But this is the church of Christ. And we're all saints called out of those broken families and made part of the family of the kingdom of God in which Christ is the head. We, well, in another metaphor, we're the bride of this Christ. It's a, this is a fully functional family. What is my identity? Oh, my identity. I'm a Christian. But they are not my brothers and sisters. I don't really like people at church. I like kind of my own personal private walk with God, and I do it my own way, but they bug me. This cross-examination is asking you to recognize that you are not just the stepchild in the kingdom of God. You cannot orphan yourself in the kingdom of God. 
You are part of a family. We cannot start going around thinking, I'm better than these people. I don't get with these people. You're part of a family. What is my identity? Then he finally tells us the identity most climatically in verse 9 through 11, um, where he talks about inheriting the kingdom of God. His implication, while he's threatening that some may not inherit the kingdom of God, his implication, though, is that, look, such were some of you. Some of you guys were vandals. You were crooks. You were sinners. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the spirit of God. So you are now members of the kingdom of God. This is our identity. And if so, then the kingdom must be our kingdom. Not the Corinthian kingdom, not the Roman kingdom, not the kingdom of America. We don't think of America as a kingdom, but we need to. Because what that means is we no longer make our society's values our values. We make the kingdom of God's values our values. That's our identity. We're Christians. We're called out. We're family. We're part of another kingdom. America is actually a rival to the kingdom of God. Now, I don't, because I've, I've had people blame me for this all the time. He's not a patriot. He hates our country. It's not true at all. This is the greatest country in perhaps the history of countries. And I love that I'm an American, but I also love more that I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. And I want my allegiance always to be to that first and recognize that I'm a saint. I am a called out one who happens to get to display the justice of God and the kingdom of God in this country. So yes, I'm loyal to my country to a point. I will never put a president or a man or a leader of this country equal to or above Christ, ever. And the church, unfortunately, has been very dangerous water there. Okay, so that's what is my identity. That's our first cross-examination. Am I part of this kingdom, this family? Am I a saint or am I really a part of the society around me? Second cross-examination what is my destiny? What is my destiny? Where am I headed? Where am I going? Paul, I wish one of the things, not maybe there's more things I would say first when I get to heaven, but you read this verse, verse two, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And you go, that's all you have to say about it. Can you explain that a little further? Like, Am I going to wave the wand over Hitler or something? Or Russia? Or Putin? Like, what does that mean? Do you not know, verse 3, that you are to judge angels? What? So, my guardian angel? Like, why did you let me break my leg, dude? You were falling asleep on the job. Shame on you. No dessert for five million years in heaven. Or does that refer to demons? Ooh, we know your dirty works, and we are happy to execute justice. I wish there was more here, but what is very clear is that Paul tells them, as if they know, because there's no explanation, that our destiny is that we will be judges, which you should think of, I think when we hear judge, in our democratic system, we have judges and we have rulers. They're separate things. But in most countries and governments before America, the ruler was also the judge. They're the, equi- they're the same thing. The king is the one who made executions and gave life. 
when therefore Paul says that we are to judge the nations and to judge angels, I take that to mean that we will be rulers of the world and rulers over angels. Psalm 8 had already said, you barely made us. Well, it depends on the, the, the Hebrew's a little crazy there, but like just a step lower than angels, some say, some just barely lower than God. But we also have in um, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says to the one who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. The church is invited to sit on his throne, that's ruling. And in uh, Revelation 5, verse 10, that great hymn of the saints praising Jesus for saving them, it says that they shall reign on the earth. We, clearly, the Bible is not shy about saying we will rule in the age to come. So if that's our destiny, how are we doing today? How are we doing today? I think we'll see how Paul wants us to rule and practice that. First of all, if the church cannot get itself together, you're not doing a good job. You're not doing great. Third, what is my ideology? What is my ideology? So we've, we've seen our identity, we've seen our destiny, but the third cross-examination is what is my ideology? Or in other words, what thought process or what values or what strategies guide and direct my life? When Paul says in verse 7, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He is showing us the Christian ideology. When push comes to shove, in other words, a Christian ideology says, I would rather be wronged than perpetrate the wrong. I would rather be defrauded. I would rather suffer than defraud and make someone else suffer. If it came down to these options, the Christian always takes the cross. They never put people on the cross. This is our ideology. And what it boils down to is, and it would have been very clear if you were living in the Roman Empire as the Corinthians are, is your ideology the way of Caesar, or is it the way of Christ? Caesar erects crosses and condemns people to be on the cross. Jesus goes to the cross and dies on it. Caesar draws the sword and says, we will expand our empire by slaying those who will not give allegiance to me. Christ says, we will expand the kingdom of God by showing sacrificial love and laying our lives down for those who are questioning whether they want to be in the kingdom. These are completely polar opposites. These two kingdoms, or these two ideologies, or these two politics are far more separated than our politics are today. We think we have a divisive ideology about how to run a kingdom? Caesar and Christ have nothing in common except the title king. But they are two very different versions of what it looks like to rule a kingdom. So what is our ideology? Is it Caesar or is it Christ? Is it verse 8? You uh, you yourselves wrong and defraud your own brothers? Or is it verse 7? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's our cross-examination. These questions tell you and I whether or not we are carrying the cross of Christ whether or not we are cruciformed or culture form. So the cruciformed, 
as you can see in verse 7, they always choose, when the option is there, they choose to suffer wrong. I'm not saying (laughs) it's your job to look out for the most miserable existence possible. Some people do that, like monks and nuns, and they might have austere lifestyles. If that's your calling, cool. But we're not saying, go find out how you can make your life suffer. It's when presented, always take the sword into you rather than pull the sword at somebody else. That's that's the cruciform life. It chooses to suffer wrong. Why? Why would anybody choose to suffer wrong? That's what what the world would ask immediately. They hear Paul's instruction and say, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Oh, I'll give you a hundred reasons why not. So why would Paul even suggest this and think that anybody in their right mind would say, okay, yes, we will suffer wrong, we'll be defrauded. Why? Three reasons. First, it's most clear, because Jesus did it. This is the way of Christ. He took the cross. This is the way of Christ. And if we are Jesus followers, it should follow that we follow Jesus. That we do what Jesus does. Jesus didn't just go to the cross in one part of history. He goes to the cross for us all the time. And what I mean by that is he's always serving us. He's always coming down to us. We also always take the cross. It's not, well, I took it when I got saved. Now good, blah, blah. No, we continue to carry the cross with Christ. We continue to suffer for the world. We continue to serve our neighbor. We continue to be wronged when necessary if it shows the world what is truly right. By the way, this is the weird justice of God, is that when Jesus was on the cross, he was bringing justice to the world, not by sitting there going, I condemn all of you as evil, but rather by being available to the evil ones and letting them condemn themselves by showing their own evil as it came out upon him and they killed him. That's the way Christians show justice. We don't sit there and judge and condemn and say, you're not just, you're wrong, you're sinful. We allow the sin to be exposed by absorbing it as it's done to us. That's what it means to bring justice to the world. And this is what Christ has done. It's the way of Christ. Second reason that we should suffer wrong when it's brought to us is that it's the way to life. It's the way to life. If Christ took the... We we should never forget that when we are going through Lent and we're taking up the cross and following Christ and when we go to Good Friday and we're always focused on the cross, we should never forget that the cross was not the destiny. The cross was not the destination. It was a means to the end. It was the road to get to the main point, which is Easter, which is resurrection life, which is the restoration of all things. This is what God always has in mind is the Garden of Eden restored for all of creation. The cross was simply the way to get the world there so when we see oh man i must suffer i must be defrauded i must take up my cross and follow christ i must have a cruciform cross-shaped life what we must see is that this is not the end it's not our destiny it's a means it's a road to get to the end which is the actual zoe resurrected heaven abiding life of god inhabiting us and bringing us up from the dead this is where we're going it's the way to life so Those who carry the cross will wear the crown. Because the cross is the means to the resurrected world, the resurrection life, the cross is just our training for the crown. We can do it, brothers and sisters. It's a short age, the age to come. 
is really long. Carry your cross so that you can wear the crown. Third reason we should suffer wrong is because to rule oneself is to rule the world. If I can't rule myself, if I can't rule my desires for revenge to exact equality, you took my eye, I'll take your eye. If I cannot control myself, I am definitely disqualified from judging and ruling the world and angels. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, or at least he alludes to it, when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The one, the meek, remember the meek, it's, it's the picture of the horse. It's raw power and majesty. A horse can overpower any human any day. But it's harnessed. It's under control of another. The Christian's power is harnessed. It's under the control of another, of Christ. He who can master himself, who can rule himself, can rule the world. And so, Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Think also of Luke um, 19, the parable of uh, the talents, or the minas in Luke. Uh, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. Your faithfulness to carry on when it didn't seem like the master's ever to come. Your faithfulness to carry on when you'd rather do other things with the money, like buy yourself new things. Your faithfulness, your faithfulness, your, your devotedness to your master through the whole time. When the master returned, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were given five cities, have ten. Was Jesus' message? You can rule justly over the little you are given. You will now be entrusted with ruling over much. If you and I can rule over this vessel, this life, which he has entrusted to us, you will be entrusted with more. Those are three reasons we should be willing to suffer wrong or to be defrauded if necessary. So then, how? How can we choose the cruciform life? Because... I know what you and I are thinking. Well, I know what I'm thinking. I don't know what you're thinking, but I think you're thinking. It's really, really tough. It's really tough to choose the route of chapter 6 verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It is really tough to not call out what that person did to you on social media. It's really hard to absorb wrong rather than let it bounce back like the kids. I don't know if they said it in your day. They said it in my day. I think they still say it. I don't know. But I'm rubber. You're glue. Whatever he says to me bounces off of me and sticks to you. It's, it's really, that's what we want to do. How then do we choose the cruciform life? Because it's against our nature. It's against the sense of, it's against societal sense of the survival of the fittest. So here's first. We're going to look at this in two ways. Um, Paul first tells them, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. In verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous or the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why does he have to say that? Because we're deceived. We're deceived by culture, which says, you shall not suffer, you shall affirm your rights. And if we do not cross-examine our hearts, culture will win. 
every time because you get it in music, you get it in television, you get it on billboards, you get it on the freeway. Even though no one's announcing, I'm first, their behavior on the roads is announcing, I'm first, and it gets soaked into you. Culture will win every time if we do not cross-examine ourselves. So Paul says, don't be deceived. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18, this, this earlier in this book, you might recall, we, uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, um, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Absolute folly. Die? No. But it is the power, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to just read parts, has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God stronger than men. See, God's ways is very different than our culture, than a society. And verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Yep. Brothers and sisters, culture finds this idea very off-putting. But the cross is the very center of this message. And it is the very center of our faith. Don't be deceived by culture. Don't be deceived by your heart. We prayed at at the 4 o'clock prayer. Uh, You guys might remember or notice that we've been praying during Lent. Um, Let's see if I can recall this. When you're out of the flow, it's a little harder. But, um, (laughs) oh God, be merciful to us, wretched sinners. For we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep, and we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Parts of that's adapted from the Book of Common Prayer, and that's what we've been praying through Lent. We have been too much, we follow too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Because my heart does not desire the cross. The Spirit of God will do that in me. So we must be careful. Jeremiah 79. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Um, Proverbs 16, verse 25. There's a way that seems right to a man, but that end is the way of death. It seems right. The heart feels right. But we must be careful. Do not be deceived by culture. Do not be deceived by your heart. We must continue to cross-examine ourselves. And the third, do not be deceived by the devil. The devil hates the cross. And we know that. Because when Peter, when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, remember Peter He's like, well, I know better. Messiahs don't die. I mean, they're like Caesar. They're going to they're gonna rule the only way we understand how to rule as humans. So Peter goes, Jesus, now I counsel you not to go to the cross. And Jesus says, depart from me. Oh, no, get behind me, Satan. For you have not set your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Do not be deceived by the devil. He will do whatever it takes to get us to reject the cruciformed life. And, ironically, it was immediately after that verse that Jesus then says, whoever will follow me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Peter, I'm not just taking the cross. You will be taking a model of it as well. Do not let the devil get in the way or make excuses for you to justify yourself. Only God can justify us. Okay, so those are the... I don't know why I did that, but there it is. Okay, I thought maybe it was important as a bottle. Um, <laughs> do not. Um, what was it? Oh, do not be deceived. So this is how we be we, to take the cruciform life. Do not be deceived. Now, positively, 
Take up your cross. It's that simple. How are we to take up the cruciform life? Take up your cross. But it looks like this. It looks like three things. This is where we can end. We can end with it looking like mortality, humility, and eschatology. That's what the cruciform life, at least in our sliver of passage here, looks like. Mortality. Let's start with that. The cruciform life is mortality. It remembers that I'm going to die. I don't live forever. Now, that might seem obvious, but most of our lives, and especially non-Christians, spend their lives ignoring the detail that they're going to, let, that they're going to die. And if they, if they think about death, it's one life to live, I'm going to give everything I can into this life for myself. But remembrance of death for the Christian, remembering that our status, anything that's happening to us in this world is temporary, that all this will perish, that there is an age to come with the justice of the kingdom of God, and keeping our minds focused on the fact that whatever I'm doing right now is very temporary because that is my true home, my true life, that will purify us. It will cause us to look at the cross and say, if this is the path to resurrection, give the cross to me. I will take it up because I can take, I can put up with the inconveniences of it for a short while because I see my mortality. I see the end is near. When we can see light at the end of the tunnel, amen, COVID maybe is here. If we can see light at the end of the tunnel, it's so much easier to endure and persevere, is it not? When we keep our mortality in light of ourselves and we think upon the fact that we're going to die, it is so much easier to keep on doing what Christ asks us to do even when we kick and scream and resist. Jot down, I'll, jot down 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. That's where Paul talks about we have this treasure in jars of clay, but we're being beaten, we're being smashed, we're being destroyed. But in all of that, we are not pressed down. We, we can't be kept down because he then says, uh, well, I'll just read a part of it to you. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, this idea of we keep moving into death so that the life of God can, can come out through us. But um, St. John of Sinai um, had this really interesting quote about remembering death. He says, the one who has died to everything remembers death. But the one who is bound to the world unceasingly plots against himself. You don't remember your death, you're going to bind yourself to this world. But you keep your death in view, you're freed, you're detached from the things of this world, and you can go forward free. The one who has died to everything remembers his death. So second, so mortality is first. Second, humility. Let us carry our own cross. This is humility. Carry your own cross rather than put others on it. (laughs) Our culture is crucifying people every other news article, every single day. Cancel culture, spitting out a venom against the other side and demonizing. We are erecting crosses on every hill of this nation and putting everyone who's not us on it. May the church never... Although, unfortunately, we've gained a reputation. We must be the ones who carry the cross. And this is humility. This is also what we do. James Hamilton Jr., he's a fantastic commentator. He, unfortunately, hasn't written much yet. But he says this. 
How do we pay? How do we make others pay? We slander them. We gossip about them. We shift blame onto them. We go to the court of public opinion and make our case there, or we end up being cold to them. Oh no, I don't ever crucify people. Have you done any of those things? We have to be careful, even politically. We are not battling against flesh and blood, brothers and sisters. We do not need to crucify flesh and blood. We're battling against the cosmic forces of darkness. And if the angels that we judge get to be the dark ones too, hallelujah evermore, save your venom for that day. Okay. Humility also, we can maintain humility um, three simple ways. Regular confession of your sins, because it reminds us that we're all equal. Now, I know um, some people have just told me, so I, I mean, this is not a, an assumption, that when at 4 o'clock prayer we do every week extended, especially during Lent, extended confession of sins. I've had people say, I've never thought about confessing my sins often. Or it's been so relieving to name these and then hear that God has forgiven us and then to praise him for that afterward. Confessing your sin, even every day, it is, a, it is a well worth, I'm not speaking right, but that's a good thing to do. It is well worth your life. What if I don't have anything to confess? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I've found, I was talking to a sister the other day, it seems that the more you confess your sins, the more you're aware of. Why would I want to be aware of my sin? Well, if you want to be the guy crucifying all the other sinners, go for it. But when I am more aware of my sin in all the little ways that I am just dust and to dust I will return, Ash Wednesday, right? Then, of course, I know humility. I know who I am. And I'm not above anyone else. And that I am by the grace of God anything. That by the mercy of God I'm still alive. This is the gateway to humility. The poor in spirit mourn their sin. Self-denial. Now, you can do fasting, of course. Fasting, will can make you proud, but it should make you humble. As you just, you don't have to do something super diligent, like I'm going to fast for a whole day or I'm going to fast for a whole week. But some people do that, and that's great, and that's fantastic. But just little denials, like maybe I'm just not going to give myself my entitled treat today. Or maybe I will let somebody else have the better seat. Or maybe, just these little ways teach us humility. And then third, this is huge, listen to others. Humility listens to others. You know our culture is not humble because no one listens to each other. This, this quote um, really convicted me, and I think it will you. If you <laughs> uh, Joan Chittister says this. She's a nun, um, she, but she, this was so insightful. She said, when arrogance erupts anywhere, it erupts invariably in speech. Our opinions become the rule. Our ideas become the goal. Our judgments become the norm. Our word becomes the last word, the only word. To be the last one into a conversation instead of the first is an unheard of assault to our egos. Our opinions become the rule. Brothers and sisters, we cannot have a just fellowship of believers if our opinions the rule. If our opinions the rule, we will always be going to court against one another. If not in the actual court, in our opinions, and then what we say about one another, and we will be erecting crosses everywhere. Our opinions must stop. The curse of social media, it's, it's good too, but the curse is that the opinion has become the law of our lives. 
the opinion sections, what everyone wants to read when it comes to news. And then we've actually forgotten the fact that <laughs> news, actually there is news and then there's opinion. And some people read opinion and think, this news is so slanted. Well, yeah, it's because that's opinion. Read the news. Read the actual news. Anyways, that's a whole other thing. But opinion, we must listen to others and put our opinions aside. That's humility. So, mortality, humility, and the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. It's Proverbs twelve fifteen. Therefore, listen to others, put your opinion aside. So, it's mortality, that's humility, and third, eschatology. Three times Peter, Paul, three times Paul says to them, Do you not know? Verse 2, do you not know? Saints will judge. Verse 3, do you not know? We are to judge. And verse 9, do you not know that the unjust will not inherit? Do you not know? Do you not know? Now, we could say theology. Christians should know their Bibles, and they should. But here's why we're saying eschatology. Because most of what Paul's saying there is about the end times. That's what eschatology is. It's the study of things to come. He says, we shall judge, we shall rule. That's end times. We, uh, do you not know that the unjust will not inherit? Inheriting the kingdom. This is end times stuff. Eschatology will help us to carry across when we keep these things in sight. Uh, Christianity, I actually, N.T. Wright said this and it was, I thought it was spot on. The world wants Christianity to be spirituality. We're just making people spiritual. And we're kind of guilty of walking in that vein a lot. It's just about my relationship with God as long as I'm growing in Him. That's what the world wants us to be. Just be spiritual. Just do your thing. But he says that Christianity is actually an eschatology. In other words, what Christianity is, is not a way to be more spiritual, not a way to just say there's a God, kumbaya. Christianity is the living presence and the preview of things to come. That's what he means by calling the church an eschatology. We are the future kingdom breaking in to the present age in this small collection of saints. That's what we are. The world will do anything to make sure that we silence our witness to the future and just be spiritual. They'll do anything to keep us doing that. And that's why we've been tamed into this ineffective, putrid, tempted, liquid called American Christianity. We are an eschatology. We are the future birth here now when we take up our cross and follow Christ. Now, before we go crazy, though, there's a very important difference between good eschatology and bad eschatology. Bad eschatology speculates, and it's passive. It's like, oh, cool, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to go on over there. That's bad eschatology. Good eschatology is active and transformative. It says, this is what we are, and so this is what we will be. It, wor- it focuses on living into our destiny. So if we're going to rule the world, let's learn how to rule our own lives and our own family. Let's learn to rule our tongue. Let's learn to rule our bodies. Most importantly, though, this is we're going to close here with C.S. Lewis. You've got to if you know what I'm about to read. Good eschatology powerfully reveals our identity, our destiny, and so therefore reminds us of our mortality and then produces humility. In other words, it's the key to all of it. Here's what Lewis says. This is his um, great sermon called The Weight of Glory. Listen carefully. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. 
Now, when Lewis says gods and goddesses, he means that we will be like God, but not be God, okay? You have to understand, he's saying this in a Christian way. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses all around me. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Everyone has the potential to be some super extreme like that, because we're going to live forever. There are no ordinary people, he says. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed communion itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost, almost the same way. For in him also Christ, the glorifier and glorified glory himself, is truly hidden. If that's true, that I have the potential to become a horrid demon or something Majestic. Why would I not then take up my cross and follow Christ? If it is true that the people around me have the same destiny, why would I not take up my cross and spare them the wrongs of my own life? Why would I not serve them? If that is true, I don't think Paul's question, why not suffer wrong, why not be defrauded, I don't find his question too absurd. It's challenging. But the cross-examined life is eager to wear the crown, so it will take up the cross.